let me tell you one of the most important truths that you have to grasp. One of the most important truths that if you grasp and truly believe this, it'll change your life. If we let this truth go deep into our hearts and our minds and our hearts and our hearts, our hearts and our minds and our lives, our lives will be turned upside down. It'll bring us a peace that uh, we maybe haven't known for a while. It'll help us to live in power in the Lord. It'll help us and give us a joy that can't be shaken. It will give us freedom. It will give us deep rest. What truth is it that we need to grasp that can turn our lives upside down? Well, it comes in three words. And these three words are this. God is good. God is good. You might be surprised about how simple that is. But if we really grasp that, it would change our lives. Now, in one sense, it is very simple. But in another sense, it is so, so deep. And most of the struggles that we have in our Christian lives can come down to the root of this, that we doubt God's goodness. That we don't believe really that He is good. We doubt His motives. We doubt that He really loves us. We doubt that he really wants what's best for us. Maybe this morning you were going through his sufferings and trials, and as they've hit, maybe they've come by surprise, or maybe you've seen it come in, in those moments we can doubt God's goodness. Is he really good if this is happening? Maybe we fall into temptation, and in those moments when you struggle with temptation, you are choosing to believe, is God good or is he not? Can I trust that God's ways are best, or am I going to trust my own ways? Maybe you're holding on to a grudge or bit, you're harboring bitterness in your heart. And really at the root of that is not believing that God is good. He's not just. He's not the true judge that we, can, that we can trust. And so we have to take the place of judge. We have to do his job for him. And so we hold people and hold their actions against them. And we don't believe that God is good. Maybe this morning you are weighed down with guilt and shame and failure. And you just think, is God good? Can he really forgive me for what I've done? Maybe you look at your life and you're, you're selfish with your time, with your money, with, um, with things that you have. Really at the heart of that is we don't believe God's good. He won't provide if I use this in a costly way. See, God is good. And it can help us in so many ways if we really believe it. And maybe you're here this morning and you're not yet a Christian and you're kind of worried about making that step. Can you see what's at the heart of that? You don't really believe that God is good. You don't really believe that he loves you and that he cares. See, in this psalm, it shows us loudly and clearly that God is good. Did you see the first um, verse in the psalm? Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His steadfast love um, is forever, endures forever. Or verse 29, how it ends, so it can be bracketed with, give thanks to the Lord for he is good, his steadfast love endures forever. The writer of the psalm shouting from the rooftops, God is good, and let me tell you why. Now, just as a quick summary of what this psalm tells us, it's a lot of verses to take in, but here's the big picture. This psalm is telling us of a king, and the king who's writing this psalm is convinced about God's goodness. He's experienced it. He has seen him help him. 
And so he wants to say, look, I want to give thanks for God is good. His steadfast love endures forever. That's why we get in verses 1 to 4, and that's what we get in verses 20 to 29. At the beginning and end, he is saying, God is good. And in the middle, he wants to tell us why. He says, God is good. Join in and let me tell you why. And this king, as we read through that psalm, I'm sure you saw, he has gone through some really tough experiences. He, his enemies were all around him. He was going through deep distress. Uh, he's told in verse 12, these enemies were like bees. I don't know if you've had bees chasing you, but they just, you know, they're on you. They don't seem to leave you alone. You try and be still, think that's what the answer is. Or you go crazy and you wave it around. They, they're after you. Enemies were around him like bees. Or like a fire that just was surrounded on by every side. He was pressed in. He was under so much pressure, verse 13, that he thought he was going to fall over. He thought, there is too much, I can't take it. But through it all, he sees God helping him. And he comes at the other side singing, verse 29, God is good. His steadfast love endures forever. So that's the testimony of this writer. That's a very quick overview of it. But the psalm shows us this in a much deeper way, God's goodness as well. Because let's remember, the reason we're looking at these psalms is because these are the psalms that Jesus would have sung with the disciples on the night when he was going to be crucified. So this is the last of the group of psalms that um, Jews would have sung, or still do sing, at Passover. So they'd have the Passover meal and they would sing these psalms throughout it. And they'd end the meal by singing Psalm 118. So Jesus sang this psalm. These are the, this is the last song he sang before going to the cross. And when we remember that, well, it again injects so much depth and richness to this psalm. In this psalm is quoted so many times in the New Testament. It's the most quoted psalm in the New Testament. Jesus himself quotes this psalm. Uh, some of the apostles quote this psalm in their letters, and they say, look, this psalm is telling us about Jesus. So it's quite clear uh, that this psalm is going to teach us about Jesus. He is the king who goes through deep distress, who goes through the battle and ends up knowing God's victory. So let's ask this question, how does the cross of Jesus, how does what Jesus goes through on the cross help us to see that God is good? Well, it shows us four things about the king. Let's look firstly at the suffering king. Jesus is the suffering king. He's the king, uh, in this psalm we see, faces these pressures. Look at verse five, in deep distress, and he calls out to the Lord. He is, verse 11, we're told that he is um, surrounded by, verse 10, all these nations that are around him. Verse 13, he felt that push and he was feeling like he was stumbling. And when we think of Jesus singing this psalm, this is what he was going to go through, wasn't it? Verse 5, deep distress. Jesus is feeling, uh, the idea there is of pressure, feeling squeezed. The Gospels tell us that in Gethsemane, he was so under so much um, emotional strain that he sweat drops of blood which is a real medical condition for people under immense and intense stress. He was so troubled. He said, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. We're told that he was surrounded. He was under this pressure. Just like the psalmist says, you're like bees around me, like a fire that's uh, taking up these brambles. It's closing in on me. Jesus felt like that. Those who had it in for him were getting closer and closer. And in a few moments after he sang the psalm, he was going to be taken away. He was going to be stripped. He was going to be beaten. He was going to be mocked. He was all alone. 
And on the cross, we see that he even turned to his father. And instead of knowing the smile of his father, who he had loved and been in this relationship of love for eternity, he just experienced a frown. Instead of the warmth of that relationship that he loved to know, there was a coldness. Instead of a welcome, Jesus on the cross got a rejection from his father. And Jesus knew this was coming and he was under pressure. He was feeling squeezed and there was no way out. And so verse 13, he felt like he was falling. In fact, we're told in the Garden of Gethsemane, he fell to the ground because of the pressure he was under. Just anticipating what was to come with the cross. Now, this psalm shows us something of the suffering Jesus was going through and what he was going to experience. But how does that help us to see God is good? Well, in a few ways. The first is this. Maybe today you're going through similar struggles. You're feeling pressed on every side. Yeah, it just seems to be everywhere you turn, there's worries and concerns, and there just seems to be no way out. These bees are around you, you know, it feels just under pressure. There's all these worries, and you feel like you're just going to topple over. It's just too much to bear. Well, look again at Jesus, because he's been there. And so when, when we come to him and pray, we can remember that we've got somebody in heaven now who understands what it's like to struggle as we do. It means that he's been where you are. And so in the middle of our struggles, instead of us kind of fleeing from God and saying, God, where are you? We remember that God has been where we are. And that draws us in. He is good. And he knows what it's like to be where you are. But not only that, let's remember the reason he was facing the suffering. Why was he bothering going to the cross? At any time he could have left. He knew what was coming, and yet he kept going. He deliberately set his face to Jerusalem. He deliberately went to the cross. Now, why did he do that? He was going to the cross because he loves you. He was going to face the torment and the struggle because he knew that was the only way for you and me to be made right with God. He was going to face the consequences of our rebellion. We are the ones who deserve to face coldness from God. We're the ones who de deserve to face his rejection because we've rejected him. We're the ones who deserve uh, that instead of, the, um, instead of a welcome and a warmth. and a, We deserve the coldness. But Jesus took that on himself as if he went into the presence of God, clothed in all our failure, and he was rejected because that's what we deserve. He did that for us. And it cost him. He suffered. You know, if you love someone or love others, it, it means we're going to get involved. If you see someone who's fallen or um, someone who's hurting and injured on the side of the road, love is concerned. Love stops. Love takes an interest. You know, when God saw us stumbling, us on the side of the road, as it were, uh, helpless because of our mistakes, he still came and he, he got involved. That's why Jesus is suffering, because of his love for us. So the suffering king shows us God is good because in the midst of our suffering, he understands it, but in the midst of our suffering as well, we can know he loves us. Sometimes in our suffering, we can think, is God punishing me? If you're trusting in Jesus, the punishment has been paid in full. We are not being punished anymore for our sin. Yes, we might face the consequences of our mistakes, but he has not punished us because the punishment is paid in full. So the, the suffering king shows us God is good. But secondly, look now at the victorious king. So even though this king, right in the psalm, was going through these intense struggles and trials, the Lord helped him. Do you see every struggle that he faced, 
the Lord answered him. Verse 5, out of my distress, I called on the Lord, and the Lord answered me and set me free. I was feeling this pressure all around, but then I was released. Verse 10, and we see the nations surrounded me, but in the name of the Lord, I cut them off. They surrounded me, they surrounded me, but in the name of the Lord, I cut them off. And it keeps going, verse 12, these bees, they were like bees and fire around him. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. Every way that he struggled, he felt like he was falling, but the Lord helped him. He came through the struggle. He came through the, um, uh, the, the, the trial that he had. And as we remember, Jesus is singing this just before he's going to the cross. What a comfort that would have been to his heart and his soul. That he knew, knew he was going to face the deepest of darkness in a few hours' time. But he also knew that this psalm was reminding him that he would come out the other side. There would ultimately be victory. Remember what Jesus says in John 10? He says, for this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me. I lay it down of my own accord. I have the authority to lay it down and to take it up again. So Jesus was going to come out the other side. And we know, don't we, the full story, that three days later, he rose again. Three days later, he came back from the dead. And as he did that, the enemies were surrounding round, but he defeated the enemies. He defeated our enemies. He took our guilt and our sin, and he said, I can forgive them. He takes our death that enslaves us, and he says, I'm defeated death. He takes Satan, the, the greatest enemy and liar, the great deceiver, and he exposes him for who he really is, a liar and a deceiver. He breaks the power of death. He breaks the power of sin. He breaks the power of Satan. The resurrection shows us Jesus has won and that uh, no one can, uh, can crush him because he is victorious. So that means that our enemies have lost their power. And when you trust in Jesus, although we know we will face death, we know it's not the end. And we know that one day, everyone who trusts in him will rise again. You know that by his strength and grace, we have been set free from sin. We don't have to say yes to it anymore. We can say no by the power of Jesus. We know that Satan now has no hold on us. He is limited. He's on a leash. Remember the story in Pilgrim's Progress that John Bunyan wrote. There he is. He's walking up uh, the hill and he sees these two lions. And they are terrifying. But he is terrified, as uh, John Bunyan says, because he couldn't see that they were on chains. He couldn't see the chains. They couldn't get him. And Satan is limited. He only has so much power. And God is greater. And so we can trust in him. So we believe in the victorious King Jesus. It means he is the one enthroned over all history. It means he's the God's chosen King working out his story and working out his purposes. If you look at verse 6, see what it says there? The Lord is on my side. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Or as Paul puts it in Romans 8, if God is for us, who can be against us? He's the victorious one. Now, perhaps right now in your life, something is happening that is so hard and confusing that doesn't seem to make any sense, and we are wondering why on earth is this happening? Why now? Why like this? Why after everything else, whatever it might be, we are facing something painful or complicated, or if not now, it'll be coming soon. We're doubting God's goodness. Well, look at the victorious king. Because it tells us in Romans 8, 28, that for those who love God, all things work together for good 
for those who are called according to his purpose. Because Jesus rose again, he shows us he's the one who is bringing history to his conclusion, and we can trust him to work it all out so that whatever we face, however confusing or dark or weak or however hard it might seem, God can use it for our glory because he's the victorious king. Remember the story I've said before about um, Corrie ten Boom? She um, was, after she was released from um, the prisoner of war camp, she went all over the world traveling, telling people about Jesus and telling people how God had helped her. And she went to, um, uh, she went into Russia uh, in the middle of the communist kind of persecution time uh, during the Cold War. And she met this old woman who was lying on a sofa, uh, kind of propped up by pillows, and her body was um, in, a, in a wreck, really, that beyond recognition, she had multiple sclerosis. And uh, her husband, who was getting on a bit as well, said that um, she, she cared, he cared for her, uh, but she spent all her time on the sofa. She couldn't move. This is what um, Corrie ten Boom said. The only part of her body she could control was her right hand. And with the index finger of that hand, she had for many years glorified God by typing on an old typewriter beside her. All day and far into the night, she would type. She translated Christian books into Russian, always using one finger, peck, peck, peck. She typed out the pages, portions of the Bible, the books of Billy Graham and uh, books of Corrie ten Boom. Not only does she translate books, her husband said, as he hovered close by during our conversation, but she prays for these people every day while she types. Sometimes it takes a long time for her finger to hit the key, or for her to get the paper into the machine, but all the time she's carrying for those whose books she's working on. I looked at her wasted form on the sofa, her head pulled down and her feet curled under her body. Oh Lord, why don't you heal her? I cried inwardly. Her husband, sensing my anguish of soul, gave an answer. God has a purpose in her sickness. Every other Christian in the city is watched by the secret police. But because she's been so sick, no one ever looks in on her. They leave us alone, and she's the only person in the whole city who can type quietly. See, in God's uh, plan, he could use a situation that looks so hard and confusing and say, I'm going to use that for my glory. It doesn't make sense to us on one level, but God uses that because he's the victorious king. What could there be in your life that God is using for his good that no other situation could bring us? No other situation could work, but God is using it. See, when we grasp the victory of Jesus, the risen one, the one who conquered death, the one who was working all things out, it really helps us to see that God is good and that he is in control. He is victorious, and ultimately it means it'll be okay in the end. Do you need to hear that today? It's going to be okay because Jesus is alive. We've got the suffering king. We've got the victorious king. Why is God good? What does the cross show us about God being good? He suffered and he's victorious. But also, verses 15 to 21, we see we've got a welcoming king. We read on in this psalm, and this victorious king now is not on his own. He gets other people joining in with him. And verse 15 tells us about people who are in tents, maybe his army there in tents, joining in this victory procession saying, you know, the king, uh, he is our king. He, we have won, kind of celebrating. And the king leads them up to these gates. Look at verse 19. And he asks, open to me the gates of righteousness. I want these gates to be open, the king says. But there's a problem, verse 20. This is the gate of the Lord. The righteous shall enter through it. Who's going to enter into this gate? Only righteous people. 
only ones who are righteous. But then, because this king is righteous, the gates are opened. He opened for the righteous king, and everybody else can then come in as well. And that's a great picture of what Jesus was doing at the cross. You know, um, how can we have access to God? How can the gates of heaven open for us? We've all failed. You know, we go into heaven, we ruin it because of our failure and sin. We don't deserve access to God. We need somebody who can get us in, who can let us in. Well, the great news is that we can't get in on our own, but Jesus can go in on our behalf. And he opens the gates and says, now you come in my name. I am the righteous king. I am the one who can welcome you in. I remember reading of the comedian Stephen Fry telling one of his stories of when he was um, starting out. He wrote a screenplay for a show on Broadway. And so he was in New York, York um, his first time in America. He was unknown then over there. And he went into a really posh restaurant. And the person at the front um, was there waiting. And you can imagine how intimidating it is to go into a posh restaurant like that. And this, he said, um, yes, the, the waiter hissed who floated up to me. And it was clear how inferior I was feeling. Oh, um, well, I'm meeting some people for lunch. I I'm afraid I'm a little early. Should I? Uh, uh, sorry. You know, he just crumpled under the pressure. Name? He said, Stephen Fry. Sorry. Let me see. I find no reservation under that name. Oh, sorry, that's my name. Uh, I think the reservation comes in the name of Kramer. Do you have a table for Terry Allen Kramer? She's a famous Hollywood uh, Broadway producer. And then he said this. It was as if the current had suddenly been switched on. A smile lit up the waiter's whole countenance. His body language transformed itself from drooping contempt to drooling abasements, quivering attention and hysterical respect. Sir, I am sure Mrs. Kramer would love for you to be seated. And you see the picture. Now, we can feel a bit like that with God. We come and we say, sorry, I, I don't know if I should be allowed in. We're full of shame and guilt. We feel like nobodies. We think... We're unworthy, and I know you shouldn't allow me in. But you see, we say, but we don't come in my name. I come in the name of Jesus. And in that moment, the gates of heaven fly open. Say, so you are welcome. You come in his name, you're with him. He's the righteous king. He's the one who invites you, come with me. We can't get in there on our own. Jesus went to the cross. He's the only righteous one. And he took our unrighteousness so that we could benefit from his righteousness. The gates of heaven can only open because of the goodness of Jesus, because of what he's done for us. And we are welcomed in his name. If today you were to die and you were to meet with God, as it were, what would you say? Why should God allow you into heaven? The temptation is to think, well, I've done a few decent things. But there's only one word that let us in, and it's Jesus. My hope is in Jesus. He has done it all. Maybe today you're wondering, can I be accepted by God? Can I be forgiven for what I've done? We come in the name of Jesus. Maybe we feel unworthy. Maybe we feel like we don't deserve it and we don't. But Jesus, in his grace and love, says, come in my name. He's the welcoming king. So he's the suffering king. Why is God good? How do we know God's good? He's the suffering king. He's the victorious king. He's the welcoming king. And the last thing is he's the essential king. Look at verses 22 uh, to 27. The king reflects on what he's been through. And he realizes, verse 22, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. 
They rejected me as their king, but now they realize that I'm the one they needed all along. You know, the cornerstone is the most important stone that they would have had in the building. The cornerstones were the ones that everything else was built off. And so the story is told about uh, this verse. I'm not sure how true it is, uh, but the story gets the point of what a cornerstone is. Uh, When the temple was being built, um, they had to quarry all the stones away from the temple so that there was no um, kind of hammer or axe allowed on the temple site because it was a a place of holiness. Uh, And so the story is told that there was a rock in the quarry uh, that was rejected by the builders. just seemed like, oh, no, we don't need that rock. Uh, that, that wasn't what they're looking for. It's not good enough. It's not um, what we had in mind. It doesn't look like the kind of rock we need. But then after loads of quarrying and rocks were found, uh, stones were taken to the temple site, they needed a cornerstone. So they needed this stone that would set all the other stones in the right way, the, the most important stone of the whole building, and they couldn't find it anywhere. And they come back to the quarry, and what do they see? That first stone that they thought was pointless or wasn't what they needed that stone that they rejected then became the cornerstone, the most important stone of the whole building, pivotal to the temple. Now, when we think of that, Jesus quotes this verse and he says, this is talking of me, the stone that the builders rejected. I'm the cornerstone that everybody said, yeah, no, you're not what we want. Yeah, no, we wanted somebody a bit different to you. But then they realize, no, actually, he's the one we need. The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And he's the one that we need, the most important of all. He is the cornerstone of life. Now, without Jesus, we have nothing. Without him, there's emptiness. Without him, there's no shape. But Jesus is the word of God, the one who speaks and lets us know what God is like. He is the purpose of life. He is the reason that all things were created for him and through him. He is the cornerstone. And this is something we see played out time and time again, isn't it? How many people at the moment would look at Jesus and say, pointless, irrelevant, old-fashioned, out of touch, but actually the ones, uh, the one that we reject is actually the cornerstone, the one we desperately need, the one who gives life in his fullness, the one who gives us forgiveness and grace and strength and hope. He's the one we need. He is the most important. Now this morning, let's ask this question to ourselves. Is he our cornerstone? Is he the one who shapes our lives, or are we trying to do it on our own? Is he the one who we come back to and say, right, how must I live now? And we look into him. Because we need to trust him, don't we, if he's going to be our cornerstone. If he's the one who's going to shape our lives, we need to know that he's good. How can we know he's good? Well, we've seen some of the things in this psalm, but look at one last thing that shows us in this psalm that he is good. In verses 23 to 27, we see the celebration there. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. And here it is, this rejoicing. And why are they rejoicing? Because they have a a sacrifice ready uh, for uh, this celebration, for this feast. And so the sacrifice is brought, um, verse uh, 27. Bind the sacrifice with cords and lead him up to the altar. There he is, the sacrifice for us, who's going to atone for our sin, who's going to make us right who's going to help us and and take our sin in our place. And so they were rejoicing. Now, when we think of Jesus, the last words that he said, bind the sacrifice. He was going to be bound. He was going to be our sacrifice. He's going to be the one who gave his life for us. And again, it brings us back to the cross. And the cross shows us you can trust him. 
he doesn't use his power for abuse. He doesn't use his power to crush us. He used his power and gave it up to set us free. He gave it up because he loved us and because he loves us so much and we can trust him. So let's go back to the beginning. How, what is this life-transforming uh, thing that we need to grasp? Truth. God is good. How do we know he's good? Because we can question it. Let's look at Jesus. Look at the cross. Because there we see this suffering king giving his life for you. The victorious king who's controlling the whole of history, bringing about his purposes that we can trust and know it's going to be okay. The welcoming king who says, look, come in my name and the gates open and the essential king, the one we must build our life on. So this morning, maybe you've drifted, maybe you've rejected, maybe you've wandered, maybe you've doubted. Jesus says today, come back, look at what I've done. Listen to the song I sang with my disciples and see that I sang this for you. I went there for you. And let's live lives now in love and obedience and freedom in the name of Jesus. We're going to sing about that in a moment. Let me pray before we do that. Father, we ask that you would help us now to live lives fully trusting that you're good. Help us to repent of ways in our hearts that we might have doubted that over this last week, over the last months or years. And help us to see Christ again, the cornerstone, the one who gave up everything for us. Help us to live in the light of this for your glory, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.